My name is Zara. And my name is Maisha. And you're listening to That's What They Said. Where we break down the them versus us narrative. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of That's What They Spilled. Today, we are featuring Cicely Bell Blaine. For those of you that don't know, Cicely is the CEO of Bacow Consulting, a diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting firm based out of Vancouver. Cicely and her team at Bacow has worked with over a thousand clients, including the likes of Lululemon, the University of British Columbia, and the city of Vancouver. They educate people about social justice, anti-racism, and they help companies better understand and tackle inclusion in the workplace. In fact, Bacow Consulting has helped develop the intersectionality toolkit for the city of Vancouver. If that wasn't impressive enough, Cicely is also the author of a book of poems called Burning Sugar and is the founder of Vancouver chapter of Black Lives Matter. All of this stems from Cicely's passion for social justice and for advocating for the rights of marginalized groups. And that's exactly what we're here to talk about in today's episode with Cicely, their work and diversity, equity and inclusion in today's world. So if that sounds interesting at all, please keep listening. Thank you, Cicely, for being here and welcome to our podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. We wanted to sort of like have you over because I think in the last year, especially, uh, there's been a global awakening to the discrimination to which Black, Indigenous and people of color, but especially Black and Indigenous people are subjected to. And I think it's it's Mm -hmm. the fact that we were in the middle of a pandemic, the world was, you know, completely in a lockdown. And that's when the terrible tragedy um you know george floyd got murdered by Derek chauvin and that happened right in the middle of the pandemic and i think that's really awakened people all across mm-hmm. the globe and we know that it happened all across the globe because we're from bangladesh and we even saw back home yeah which is so far away from north america people were just more attentive to what was happening so i think we just i think diversity equity inclusion these have been like key buzzwords that have come up in the last year more so i think in a corporate setting uh, post George Floyd's murder, I think a lot of companies have been trying to step up their game and try to understand this. So we wanted to have you over because you're someone who actually does the work in the field. We just hear about these social justice issues and read about them, but you're the one who actually helps these companies identify the problems and sort Mm -hmm. of guide them and, you know, help them design policies. So we wanted to, I guess, start with the kind of work that you do at uh, Bacow. First of all, what does Bacow mean? Because I know initially it was uh, Cicely Bell Blaine Consulting. Yeah. Yeah. So I founded Cicely Blaine Consulting in January 2018. And then because everything kind of grew so much, especially as you say, over the past year, like there's just been so much more interest in anti-racism work and consulting and things like that. Um we yeah we we grew to a team of 12 people now and there were a lot of people who kind of like would reach out and they would want me <laughs> like they would want me to do the workshop all the time and I, I don't have the capacity for that and I have such an amazing team that I, I of course want to show how brilliant they are as well so I kind of wanted to like remove my name from the brand and kind of give it its own like a life of its own so that's kind of why we we changed the name and and it means um well, Bacow is a place, um, a coastal city in the Gambia, which is where my family, uh, my maternal family comes from. Um, so we, yeah, kind of named it after that. And yeah, so what we do is is lots of different things, lots of different types of consulting. Um, we do um, lots of workshops, anything from LGBTQ inclusion to anti-racism, inclusive language, unconscious bias. Um, we help clients 
right to new policies that are more reflective of an inclusive environment. Um, and we also do audits, which is a kind of way of um, assessing how well an organization is doing and like what are their areas for improvement. Um, yeah, so it's a pretty fun job because you get to do lots of different kind of creative things all sort of within the umbrella of diversity, equity and inclusion. Yeah, honestly, you guys, even though like the work is serious, your Instagram page makes work look so fun. I am so jealous that, you know, I'm not in that work environment, the color and, you know, even just like I looked at some of the templates you guys have for out of office place. And I was like, if I use this in my work, I don't know how they react, but I wish we did, you know? Yeah. So it's awesome. It seems like a great place to work. And um, yeah, I guess one of the main things that for myself I, I don't necessarily know the difference between say equity and um, equality. What is equity? And I think a lot of people kind of equate it to equality. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the reason that we focus on equity is because equality is um, kind of like the end goal. Like we obviously we want a society where everybody is treated equally. Everybody has the same opportunities. Nobody is held back because of the color of their skin or their social class or their gender. Um, but unfortunately, in the current world we live in, we cannot immediately achieve that. That's like long term work of like changing systems. So equity is more of a sort of stepping stone to achieve equality. Equity is about redistributing power, redistributing resources and, and wealth um, so that people who maybe come from disadvantaged backgrounds or come from oppressed and marginalized communities um, can have what they need in order to thrive and overcome systemic barriers to eventually reach that goal of equality. Because if we focus on equality, that essentially means we're giving everybody the same thing. Um, but that doesn't work because everybody's starting at a different place, right? And everybody has different barriers that they face. So equity is like giving people the specific tools that they need um, to thrive in their situation and um, yeah, to kind of break down some of those structural barriers that might be in their way. So it's more like the individual or the group's needs as opposed to just thinking about everybody's needs and a collective. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, equity really focuses on recognizing that some people will have more privilege than others. So people who have more privilege, they don't need anything more at the moment, right? They, they are able to function and exist within society um, as it is. And well, so, yeah, it's a that. Or under or understood what you just yeah. said that you know they already have a lot, or, yeah. or the base. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Marginalized communities don't. Have yeah, exactly. Mm. Right. So yeah, they might have more access to something, or better educational background, or um, yeah, things that make it easier to get through life. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's more about giving some more power and money and and tools and resources to those who haven't always had those things. So based on what you kind of like, how you explain equity, how do you sort of have this conversation or how, how do you kind of like get that process of, you know, DNI uh, started with corporations or organizations that you work for? Because, you know, it's, it's, it's still an uncomfortable to say, you know, or uncomfortable to talk <laughs> about it, you know, yeah, like, especially in Canada. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I think that, you know, it's like, it just doesn't come up. And, you know, even though, mm -hmm it's the people of color who are experiencing it, right? Or and black and indigenous particularly are experiencing it. Even they will feel uncomfortable talking about something that makes them uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, but just because the majority might not be comfortable, how do you do that when you're literally probably sitting down with say the leadership of, you know, companies and organizations and mm -hmm. how do you broach that topic? 
Yeah, it's definitely difficult because, um, yeah, I, I think especially in Canada, it's not uh, it's not common to have open conversations about racism or sexism or all of these systemic issues. And, you know, um, I think, yeah, in, in other parts of the world, like in the US, for example, conversations about race are so much more sort of extreme that it's it doesn't mean that it's easier to fix, but it means that like at least there's a dialogue happening. Whereas I feel like in Canada, it, it, it is quite difficult to to broach that topic, especially because a lot of people don't realize that they might have been complicit in racism or sexism at some point in their life, or even now. Um, you know, it, it's it's hard to address that with people. Um, so what we try to do is we try to have like a very um, sort of approachable vibe like you know as you've seen with our website like we want to invite people in that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy that doesn't mean it's going to be you know it's not always fun to be talking about oppression like there will be hard moments and we we need people to go into that place of vulnerability and and reflect on their own unconscious biases or reflect on how they might have caused harm to others um, even people within their organization um, but we kind of like to start with that sort of approachable um, sort of atmosphere and that kind of like breaks the ice and then we kind of dive into deeper topics and, and really sort of get people talking. Mm -hmm. That's it's, it's interesting that you mentioned like trying to be approachable because you know I work in a very male dominated field straight mostly straight males honestly and uh, it's in engineering and nobody really like discusses race or anything controversial in general not only in my office but essentially in my industry with contractors I work with, with clients so they, they are the kind of people that sometimes when you bring up sensitive things like this they they essentially call you sensitive or they call you or they say like oh like not everything is about race or not everything is about gender like as a female in engineering sometimes I'm just like I feel like they feel that I'm exaggerating anything any struggles that I've had compared mm -hmm. to them so in that sense do you get a lot of pushback in these say workshops that you have or even when you talk to say an exec of a company or the company whoever's creating this DI program for the company um excuse me um I wouldn't say that I, I would say the issue is that the pushback is often very subtle so it will be like oh you know we don't have time for this or we don't have the budget for this or this is not a priority right now um or you know we already did a workshop so we don't need to do anything else it's kind of like that like it's and I think sometimes people don't even realize that 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 is a sign of them pushing back like they think that you know um, you know, especially when it's a corporate client, like, you know, that they have the money, um, but they're just not allocating the money well enough to important projects like this. They're allocating it to other things that might, you know, get more profit, for example. Um, so, yeah, it is kind of interesting because usually the person who's reaching out to us is, you know, maybe like the HR manager or, um, you know, just somebody else in, in the company who then has to try to convince their bosses, basically, that this is important. Um, so I really uh, feel sorry for those people who have to do that work, but we kind of try to help them, like, yeah, sort of sell it, basically, to the higher-ups, um, which can be difficult. But um, I think especially over the last year, people have realized how important it is. So we've definitely, it's definitely become easier and we've had to do less kind of, like, selling, basically. And, you know, specifically in my last job um i started a new job this year in my last job the company uh it was a like big uh, multinational consulting company and you know how you just mentioned that in the last one year i think for companies 
think they've, they've really like awakened. And I remember that even though my prior company, you know, I think relative to a lot of other corporations, my previous employer was one of the more, um, you know, um, I would say champions are more like on the forefront about these issues or at least more aware about it. And I remember mm-hmm. my um, partner checking in with staff to see how we were feeling in light of, you know, uh, the protests, the, you know, Black Lives Matter protests and, you know, the global, pro- the global movement really around it. And uh, I, I, I it, it was like, for me, it was like, it was a different moment because I was like, oh, that, like, you know, I know that we really champion diversity and inclusion, but to have that, you know, to ask that to your junior staff, I, it was, it felt, it felt good, you know, and I felt like that's when I realized that, you know, George Floyd's death, it has actually like, kind of like, you know, turned on that switch of conversations in Canada, and really like hmm. opened the field, really. So do you see a difference there, you Canada and the US? Um, yeah, I would say that, I think it also depends where I would say Vancouver is quite um, I think Vancouver has always been like just in my experience has always been a little bit more open and ready for the conversations than other places in Canada I feel like those other places have kind of jumped on board as you say in the last year mm-hmm. um, I think yeah it, compared to I think the US just has very different approaches like for example affirmative action is a much bigger thing in the US which isn't really as much of a thing here or the US is often very like quota based, for example. So like they'll say like, by the end of the year, we'll try to get 10% more women at this company, for example, whereas in Canada, that's way less common. Um, People don't really measure, which is kind of both a good and a bad thing. Like in general, Canada tends to to lack data and and statistics around race and and other important things, which means it's much more difficult to prove that these issues are happening. so I, I would, yeah, it, it's kind of like a bit of a, a mixed bag, really, where the US is very rich in data. So there's a lot of information about people's experiences and, and you know, you can really make very solid points, um, you know, about disparities and stuff like that. Whereas in Canada, it's very difficult to say, you know, categorically, these people are suffering because of X, Y, Z. So I would say that's one of my biggest sort of frustrations in in the difference. Um, But it can also mean that sometimes a US audience is more polarized than a Canadian audience, like a Canadian audience would kind of be a bit more like middle of the road, like you'd get you might get people who disagree. But they would still be curious, or they might disagree, but not necessarily you know like maybe they would write me an email afterwards saying that they disagreed rather as whereas like an American audience they would just say it like right yeah. there and then so yeah it, it's definitely it's interesting to compare the two okay. you know you know the frustration that I mean the, are we going off topic but like the frustration with like lack of data in Canada I'm working I'm an environmental economist so we work you know around uh, environmental modeling the same Canada doesn't have as much data as the U.S. when yeah. it comes to like climate change models and stuff that we look at so yeah, definitely. I think having more data just gives a better picture of what the situation is, right? Mm-hmm. But um, just going back to what you said, Cicely, about, you know, how in the US, there's a lot more, I guess, conversation and a lot more, like, even court cases around affirmative action and, you know, quotas, right? Um, you know, there are, there is, there are a lot of, say, Black, and Indigenous and people of color who um, say that, you know, like, they don't want to be hired based on, and LGBTQ, of course, um, they don't want to be hired based on 
you know, their, uh, that difference, right? What makes them different, their skin color, sexuality. So they don't want that, I guess, quota or, mm-hmm. um, you know, that old company has to meet 10%, yeah, right? That they'd rather hire based on merit as opposed yeah. to... Yeah, so I, I think because, you know, even even like, because even in back home and, you know, in Bangladesh, we have quotas for a certain, you know, institutions have quotas for hiring women mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, mm-hmm. different um, different uh, ethnicities, you know, um, or, religion, so, yeah. yeah, or different religions. So I think, mm-hmm. even because, you know, it's, it's such, such a tricky thing because with quota, it's like, you know, like, I'm sure I want, like, I just think about it that, oh, yeah, sure, I would want to be hired because I'm good, but then... Because, you know, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to think that, okay, for, for the person, say for a white person, right? They're, I'm just trying to think from their perspective that, okay, like, say I am equally a good candidate, right, as this other person of color, but if they get hired just because they're a person of color or they're an LGBTQ community member, then, um, like, from their perspective, it seems, like, unfair. But at the same time, it's like, this because it... I'm, less, I'm struggling with the lack of words here because I'm thinking that where do you draw the line, right? Because at the same time, as a person of color, I'm thinking that, you know what, the system is already so like behind for people of color that you need to have quota. You need to give us an advantage because we've been disadvantaged for so long. So like, what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I do think it's really tricky. And, and I think overall, yeah, I lean more towards the side of, quotas are not necessarily the best way to go about things because yeah basically what it can create is essentially tokenism or like even resentment like where people know that somebody's being hired to fulfill some kind of quota or even if they assume somebody's being hired to fulfill a quota they're going to treat that person differently um and yeah that that resentment from people who I mean that I think that resentment does exist anyway where you know, people who, yeah, come from more privileged backgrounds, people who are white, people who are men, um, sort of, you know, sometimes you hear people saying that they feel like because of the, you know, the new focus on DEI that they're being left behind or they're being intentionally replaced kind of thing. So I feel like with the quotas that just amplifies that mentality. Um, and, and I think, yeah, I, I, I think there's, maybe like there's a middle ground. Like I think you can still measure and say like, you know, this number has increased, but I think when you specifically say like, oh, we're gonna have, yeah, like 10 more people by this time frame, it does end up becoming that you're selecting people based on their, um, yeah, based on their background. And, and then that person is also coming into a working environment that isn't necessarily ready to support them. Like I think, organizations have to do the work first before they can start trying to focus on um, on diversity in the workplace. I mean, yeah, before they can focus on diversity and, and more people from diverse backgrounds, they have to actually fix any existing problems within the workplace. Yeah, I think um, with, with that whole conversation, the thing that I guess sometimes bothers me is that when people give the pushback saying, but people should be hired based on their merit, not based on their color, religion, sexuality, Et cetera, et cetera. But it's just like when they say something like that, it almost feels like to me that they're equating that those people who are uh, minorities or marginalized, they are not as good as the mm-hmm. straight white male, yeah. which which is what makes me angry sometimes. But at the same time, like I can definitely see that promoting the quotas, how it can even make 
that toxic ideology that, that those people have even more right because they're like oh now you're taking away my jobs yeah. so yeah it's definitely a tricky tricky place to be mm-hmm. yeah yeah and yeah but is that something that you guys do in your training talk about hiring um yeah yeah we talk about hiring a bit we kind of talk about how like unconscious bias shows up a lot in hiring and and not so much in training but especially when we work on our audits for clients and and they're asking for recommendations um so when we present to them the final report we give a lot of recommendations of how they can um yeah how they can improve the workplace and and how they can kind of actually change you know make make strategic changes and and we offer a lot of suggestions about hiring and like how they can make that a more inclusive and, and accessible process so that naturally over time their diversity will increase because they're trying harder to be more inclusive and equitable in their hiring process. So like target the root as opposed to just like hire five more yeah. people of color. Exactly. That's, yeah. such a, that's such an interesting point actually because what you said that you know you need to first fix what inside the organization before you just make this mandate that I'm going to, you know, do 10% of my staff is going to be, I don't know, like yeah. women. Say yeah, because unconscious bias is not easy to get rid of, right? Yeah. It's, it's unconscious. So essentially you have to first acknowledge that you have yeah. it and that's like the root, first of all. Yeah. And I never thought of it that way, but mm-hmm. yeah, I guess that's why we have you here. <laughs> yeah, sharing all your insights. Um, yeah. yeah, so I think we're going to take a little break from the DEI and um, I wanted to bring up this point because I thought it was really fun. But um, I actually follow you on Instagram and I saw that you had uh, a bit of an obsession with the royals back in the day. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? Like, I think I heard that the royal family is thinking of hiring a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant after the whole Meghan Markle uh, situation. So have you ever thought about, you know, consulting the royal family? <laughs> um, I, I feel like that is, I, <laughs> I don't yeah, I mean, I think possible, but. I think the royal family is just fascinating because it's it's kind of like a yeah it's kind of like a love-hate relationship that I have because it's like it's the most ridiculous thing ever like it it makes no sense why did who are these people why do these people have so much money like it doesn't make any sense and also like yeah when you think about like the history of colonization like I see them as like over glorified celebrities basically and I think it's kind of fun to watch them from that lens but yeah I don't think I would well, I don't want to say I would never, but like the idea of of consulting for them would just be, mm-hmm. I mean, it just, that would be the biggest job in the world. Like, how do you get this like old, like white colonial family to understand diversity and inclusion? Like that just sounds like, I don't think enough money in the world could like pay a team of like a hundred people to fix yeah. all the problems that they've caused yeah. in history. So <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I would take that on. It's safe to say that obsession isn't there anymore. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, I obviously, yeah, I love Meghan Markle, but that's about where it stops. <laughs> but um, on that note, actually, something that I was actually curious about is your thoughts on the quote unquote cancel culture. Mm-hmm. I don't always like using that word, mm-hmm. but you know, you're someone who I guess it's part of your job to educate. Like, obviously, it's not your responsibility to educate everyone, but part of your work is putting the materials out there, teaching companies, um, all that stuff. So what do you think about people who do make mistakes? Or people, some, obviously some people make intentional mistakes, mm-hmm. but people who make, they unknowingly they make mistakes or people who are just lack education at some point. Do you think that they deserve to be, lose their job and all that? Yeah, I think, 
I think it really depends. Um, and I think that's kind of the issue with where council culture kind of went wrong is because the basically, yeah, the right kind of co-opted this idea of holding people accountable and then kind of took it to the extreme and started saying like, oh, so-and-so is canceled or whatever. The problem is that a lot of people are never actually canceled. Like the, you know, a lot, a lot of celebrities who have, you know, sexual assault claims against them or, you know, they've said racist stuff or whatever. They're still very much there and doing their thing. Like they haven't really been canceled. Um, and I think the problem is that, yeah, people get confused that a lot of times people are asking for accountability, people are asking for justice. Um, but yeah, what kind of like right wing people or like people who can't be bothered to, to, you know, do more learning, think that it just means, oh, we shouldn't buy this person's books or like we shouldn't follow this person on social media, which obviously is included in that accountability. But um, yeah, I, I think, yeah, back to the other part of your question, I, I do think that there's, um, yeah, I think there's nuance in there in, in the fact that it really sort of depends. Um, Tricky, yeah. yeah, sometimes there's like, someone who has, you know, a celebrity who's made one mistake, they've, I don't know, there's a picture of them appropriating someone else's culture or something. And it's usually just because they're very uninformed. Um, but I think because of the, you know, the public eyes is, is so scrutinous that then that person is expected to, um, yeah, kind of like disappear from the, from the spotlight. Whereas it would be so much easier if like, someone preferably like one of their close friends just kind of explain to them how that's wrong um and how they can be better next time um whereas obviously if it's something as extreme as like sexual assault or something um then yeah there should be much more serious consequences so i think and i think the fact that cancel culture is so like such a, a contentious like issue it actually makes it very difficult for regular people to call each other out on stuff because there's this fear of yeah being cancelled there's this fear of um you know it being a, a much bigger issue than it is but for the most part like if someone just says something or you know it's usually just because they're unaware um and and they're ignorant it doesn't mean that they're a bad person um but yeah i think there it, it creates this excess like fear that that is actually not necessary um, and if we were more gentle with one another and, and we were like, oh, you know, what you said the other day, that wasn't appropriate, but, you know, I know that you're trying, um, you know, can we work on this together? Like if we were more gentle with one another, I think people would be more open, um, to learning. I think, and I think that, you know, when cancel culture, cause I feel like cancel culture is completely like clashes with the goals of diversity, equity, inclusion, because if, you know, like I personally believe that, you know, if you have such a stark difference with someone, let's talk, right? Let's let there be a dialogue, right? And that's how we can get on the same page or try to create, you know, come to a, a, a compromise or understanding, right? But with cancel culture, I think with some cases, it, you know, it, it, if you take it too far, then anybody else will be like, you know, like, oh, you can't make a mistake or, you know, like, as you said, you can't call anybody out. So you either stay quiet or, you know, like the silent voters who don't show up in polls, but then they go vote for Trump, but they <laughs> did, or, or you, you just, you know, there's no, it's more polarization. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think cancel, cancel culture is 
anything that's too that becomes too much of a controversy just like goes out of hand because one in one side people become too extreme on the other mm-hmm. hand it takes mm-hmm. away from like you said the real work of making them accountable for yeah. their actions yeah yeah and like i guess um on that note uh well one thing that i think cancel culture has led to is like cookie cutter apologies i look at all mm-hmm. the apologies that everyone puts out and they're all like i'm learning i'm listening and you know it's true, they should be learning and listening, but are they just copy pasting that or is that something that they're actually doing? So like, how do you feel about that? I guess this kind of, it's almost like performative allyship. Like they've all of a sudden turned a leaf and they're sharing resources, which are just say infographics on Instagram and whatnot. Like, how do you differentiate and what is actually listening and learning, do you mm-hmm. think? Yeah, I think, yeah, uh, these sort of performative apologies have kind of become their own thing where it's almost like, it's so expected. It's like a broken record almost that it's like, yeah, it seems so scripted and, you know, like their, their PR manager has written it for them or something. And it's like, I think, but yeah, at the same time, I, I think that a lot of the time people are still going to feel hurt, even if there's an apology. And I, and I think that should be more understood. I think people especially, yeah, like public figures will apologize and then expect that the issue is solved um, and not recognizing that that hurt could be ongoing um, and that maybe they need to like lie low for a minute or, you know, maybe they need to do do more, um, you know, maybe make a donation or, you know, attend, um, you know, really like invest in education for themselves and, the, and their community um, and become an active ally. And, and that means, um, you know, holding other people ac- accountable in, in their circles. Um, because if, if they have that perspective, probably other people around them do as well. So they can share that learning that they've had from that situation. But I feel like, yeah, it kind of just becomes almost like a, um, like a factory of just sort of, yeah, turning out these, these apologies. And, but I also don't think that's a new thing. Like, I don't think that's a new thing as it, re- as it relates to celebrity culture, because I think governments do that too, right? Where, you know, a, you know, like the Canadian government issuing an apology to, um, you know, the people on the Kamagata Maru or, you know, issuing an apology to Indigenous people. Like, I think it's, it, yeah, it's definitely a way of avoiding accountability, really. Exactly. It's just a vicious circle. And you think when is mm-hmm. change, you know, and um, even on a personal level, I think, unfortunately, you know, our families being South Asian conservative families, our families, they say a lot of inappropriate stuff, be it about, about black people or about other Asians and, or also, even, even within our own, even within our own community, like yeah. perpetuating say colorism in our community and all mm-hmm. that. And we let it go because we think of it as a joke. Like it's just aunties being aunties. And then like, unfortunately, when we try to fight with them, we become like the, rebellious child I've been there and then I've decided it's not worth fighting with my family I've given up and then unfortunately because of everything that's happened again I've decided like I can't just be quiet around my family members so I think active allyship is definitely yeah. something that we all need to do yeah, yeah. but one thing that I did want to ask you about was um uh this article that I read online of was written by Kim Tran she's also another uh diversity inclusion consultant I believe and she was kind of writing an article about how she, she thinks that perhaps this industry has kind of lost its way and it's um, maybe catering more to corporate 
into actually people who are marginalized. Mm -hmm. Do you ever reflect on the work that you do? And how do you agree with her? Have you read the article in general and all that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I've read, I've read the article and I've read a lot of her work. And yeah, it, it's a really strange moment, I think, that we're in, in this industry. I mean, even a couple of years ago, I wouldn't have even called it an industry. It was just like, you know, a couple of consultants here and there, like having conversations. But now it, it, it's definitely, yeah, it, it's become big and it's, and which can mean that there's a lot of, there's a lot of different people in the game and there's a lot of people who I would not necessarily align with. Like there's lots of different viewpoints, there's lots of different approaches. Um, and that can mean that, yeah, like one of my biggest frustrations and struggles with the industry is how many um, white people, especially white women, are profiting off of this work. Um, you know, like Robin D'Angelo, who wrote White Fragility, um, you know, is one of the, the highest paid writers about anti-racism, but, you know, she's a white woman and, and yeah. makes so much more money than women of color and black women. Um, so yeah, I think it, it's it's weird, and 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 I, you know I haven't like lost hope for the work. Like I I think if people can you know stay rooted and stay grounded in um, their values, and and you know for us our values are intentionally about anti oppression and anti racism, about social justice and collective liberation, and um, you know many of my team are activists and have that like experience of you know, being out on the streets and fighting for justice. And um, so I, I think that, uh, yeah, I, I still see see hope, but it just has to be done really well. Um, but yeah, it is frustrating for myself as, you know, as a person of color um, in, in the industry. And, and even like at the moment, I've been thinking about like, um, like rates and like how much to charge and like, should we change our rates? Like sometimes I'm seeing other people charging like $5,000 for a workshop and, and, and it's like, you know, there's no standards. Like it's such a new industry. There's no, there's no standards. There's no like accreditation. It's just like anybody can do it or say that they're doing it, but that could look very different. Right. So I think, yeah, I definitely agree with that, with that article and, and what Kim Tran kind of brings up. Um, of yeah I mean I think it's I don't think it's like a case of it's completely lost its way but I do think it, it does require a lot of questions and and consultants to be asking themselves and asking each other questions I think one thing that you pointed out that you know it it's like a lot of um like we said like white women you know doing the work and you know whereas women of color black women indigenous women their work is not getting it noticed and I think um just stepping outside even the DNI um, industry, even if when I look at sometimes when I look at like in the corporate world, like you know how companies report on the progress of women, right? Yeah. A lot of the progress is focused on the achievements of white women and not so much mm -hmm. women of color. And if you still look at women of color, they're not as much in leadership positions, mm -hmm. they're not as much, you know, mm -hmm. driving these corporations, but they're still celebrating equality. And then I'm like, mm -hmm. we're completely forgetting women of color, you know, who are actually more or trans women. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So I think those marginalized groups, uh, LGBTQ people, those 
groups are more affected. Um, not not mm -hmm. to take away from the struggle faced by white women, but I think that, you know, um, these other marginalized groups are not always given their due. Or when it comes to the conversation around progress being made, the progress is only focused uh, on the progress being made in, for white women. Yeah. No? So we just need to basically think more about intersectionality. Yeah, right? yeah, intersectional. Yeah, and I think I like about your mm -hmm. website when I was looking through it is that you guys say that you're working with your lived experience. Like obviously mm -hmm. you are experienced, you have experience in your work, but your lived experience is important here too because yeah. at the end of the day, the people who are affected by say unfair policies at work are people who are living with even small things like hearing racist remarks down, like up to racist policies, right? Yeah. So the fact that you guys can bring your your lived experience to your work, I think that's what makes you different from just like a cookie cutter policy that gets you out of legal trouble, right? Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I think that's why yeah. like diversity, equity, inclusion is important because you guys are bringing your experiences yeah. to help others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So speaking yeah. of how consulting work, mm -hmm. we know that you guys have a book releasing at the end of the month. It's called mm -hmm. A Year of Fighting White Supremacy in a Pandemic. So do you want to just you know, tell our listeners a bit about Plug it. Plug your book a little before yeah. we <laughs> Yeah, totally. Yeah, so we kind of have been reflecting on everything that's happened over the past year, and especially when it comes to, like, inclusion and accessibility and um, social justice. You know, so much has happened that has really, like, not only further exposed injustice in society, and I think that's kind of what made people really wake up to you know, anti-blackness with the murder of George Floyd. Um, and that kind of really inspired us to think about, there's so much that we should hold on to from this time. Like it's, you know, things like working from home and, you know, more accessibility for people. And, um, you know, even not, not that they were necessarily all effective, but, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, things like Serb and, you know, things like that, where we realize that people need stuff to survive. And up until this point, we were really um, just kind of going along, not questioning those things. And I feel like a lot of people have really sort of woken up and started to question the way that our systems function. And we kind of just wanted to put that all together in a book. Um, so we've got part of the book is written by me and, and my team. Um, we're kind of like sharing the best practices that we have. Um, or we've adopted in, in our company. And then we've got some guest writers who write about things like parenting and grief and um, uh, what else? So they write about accessibility and neurodivergence and all of these things that have been challenging for people throughout the pandemic. And kind of, there's lots of ideas and activities and solutions in the book that people can, yeah, learn about and, and hopefully hold on to some of these great ideas. And it's releasing on April 30th? Yeah, that's the plan. I'm, I'm still editing it, but hopefully, yeah, <laughs> April 30th. We'll be yeah, able to down. I mean, everybody just needs yeah. to forget about deadlines. Like, <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, thank you so much once again for coming on our show. I'm yeah. really happy that I finally got to talk to you. I've been following you for quite some time now yeah. on Instagram. And, you know, through your Instagram, even I learned about that whole white fragility issue as well. Mm -hmm. So I think to our listeners, you need to follow people of color. You need to follow black women. You need to follow queer black women. You need to follow indigenous people to know about the actual issues that are out there, you yeah. know? Um, and as you probably heard from talking to Cecily today, no one is here to polarize this issue more and no one's here to, you know, divide people, you know, like us, like unlike our podcast, it's not them versus us. We're just trying to 
everyone's just trying to make each other understand each other correct right it's like, like we're just trying to be it's like it's like just, you know just because i mean if, if someone's rights are you know held at the same level as yours doesn't mean your right is getting trampled i mean that's where people yeah. you know I, I guess anyone in power really or privilege it's like any sort of threat that they think is uh, gonna take that privilege away they just become defensive you know walls up and everything but anyway um yeah, I think the today we wanted to talk about these issues because, you know, I think today for both of us and as well as for our listeners, we got to know a lot from the insights that you shared and, you know, from your own work experience, what you do at Bacow. I think that's amazing, you know, like the work that you do. You're very young. <laughs> so, I mean, inspiration for a lot of our listeners, I bet. And uh, the work that we need right now, uh, especially in a place like Vancouver that's so diverse that's you know up and coming you have so many companies mm-hmm. we have tech startups and so we hope that Bacow is there to help you know a lot of these organizations and yeah to all our listeners Bacow has a book coming out on April 30th go check, wait, go check it out when it's out and go check out the website for all the amazing work they do so yeah thank you for your time today we really appreciate it yeah thank you so much for having me this was great we are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Podbean. For updates and to connect with us, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at, at That's What They Said Podcast.